those of you who know me know that I just love coming to this fellowship and this morning my pleasure has been doubly enhanced or is being doubly enhanced in having people from America and someone from Uganda as well you see I didn't tell you this before but I am an American Baptist well, I know my accent doesn't quite fit, but uh, uh, I spent a year in America in 1956, and it was there that God finally pinned me down. I'd been half converted for years and years. <laughs> and it was there in a little Baptist church in Silver Lake, Wisconsin, that I was put in a corner, and God said, are you coming with me or are you not? And I said, yes, Lord, that's it. I give in this time. And I never thought there in 1956 that all these years later, at the age of 82, I would still be preaching his word. Oh, he's so good. He is so good, isn't he? Yes. And we had in Govan, where I was pastor of the Baptist Church for many years, we had lovely Nigerian people come and fellowship with us, and they were such a joy and inspiration to us. Their faith was away up here somewhere and uh, really encouraged us so much. It's good to be with you again, and we're going to turn this morning to Exodus. Sometimes when we get a bit discouraged, when... We think God might be doing more than he seems to be doing. It's good to go to passages of scripture where we are able to read of mighty things. Not ordinary everyday things, but mighty things that God has done. I hope like me, as you go on in your Christian life, you don't get contented. You don't settle down in that sense, but rather have a longing to see God do yet greater things, to see God move in greater power. The needs in the church and in the world are absolutely enormous. Let's pray before we turn to the scriptures. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth, absolute truth on which we can rely. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth who guided those who wrote the Holy Scriptures and who is here now to help us to receive what you want to say to us and what you want to give to us and what you want to do in us as we turn again to your precious word. So Holy Spirit, please help us, speaker and listeners alike. In Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you will be very familiar, I imagine, with the record of what God did to rescue his people, the Jewish people, from a very long time of bondage and slavery in the land of Egypt. It's one of those passages where there's really too much to read for one sermon, but let's, let's read bits of it anyway. Exodus uh, chapter 13. The Passover had been celebrated and the time had come for the actual exodus to take place. Verse 17 then of chapter 13 of Exodus. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they faced war they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Verse 20, after leaving Succoth, they camped at Esam on the edge of the desert. But day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire. Chapter 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahiros, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Beelzephon. 
Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. <coughs> Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind him. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. <coughs> we'll leave it at that for the reading. What are we seeing here? We're seeing God move in a most extraordinary way to rescue his beloved people. And as we listen to the conversation between Moses and the people, we realize that the people were told almost to do two contradictory things in quick succession. There was a call to obedience, a clear call to obedience. And if we remember, and we'll not take time to look it up, but if we remember the beginning of the book of Romans, what Paul says about the gospel there and the very last few verses of the book of Romans, in both cases, he states this very important fact. That the gospel call is a call to obedience, not just a call to faith, not just a call to repentance. These are essential. But unless we get to the point of obedience, and that's where the Lord brought me to in 1956, unless we get to the point of obedience, we're not there yet. Huh? So the call to obedience, think of the obedience of Jesus, who became obedient to death on the cross. He knew what it was to be obedient to his Father, even though that meant the most awful suffering as he bore our sins 
in his body on the tree. The call to obedience here, and we find it particularly in verse 13 of chapter 14, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. That's a call to obedience. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The first call was a call to be fearless. Fear is only legitimate if it's some sensible fear of danger, i.e. don't put your hand in the fire, or if it's a spiritual fear of God, reverent fear. Every other fear is destructive. And many Christians are paralyzed by fear of one level or another. Afraid to venture out, afraid of what may happen if they do a certain thing in obedience to the call of God. Fear is paralyzing. Now I haven't checked this out, it would take too long, but I have read somewhere that somebody checked it out. And they discovered that in the Bible there are 366 places where God says in one form or another, don't be afraid, fear not, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, fear not. That's pretty good. One for every day of the year, even for a leap year. I like that. That's how important it is that we don't give way to fear. God repeats himself over and over again. John tells us perfect fear casts out love. You see, we grow up experiencing perfect love casts out fear, I'm sorry. Uh, we grow up experiencing all sorts of things that are frightening. And we live in human love situations where love is always a bit imperfect. But when we encounter the perfect love of God, the perfect love of God, the Bible says that drives out fear. And we need to make to that call to avoid fear a personal response. If you remember what we read in the book of Hebrews, the last chapter, chapter 13, we read these words, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I wonder if there's somebody here this morning who is facing an experience that is proving to be a bit scary. You're experiencing fear. Fear of the unknown is a very great fear. Fear of illness, fear of financial disaster and so on. Is this a day when you have to say to the Lord and say to other people as well, The Lord is my helper. He has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So I'm saying today with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. That's the personal response, the individual response. But we also at times need to make a corporate response. If we go to Psalm number 46, for example, and we find there some wonderful encouraging words. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And later on in that psalm, the psalmist writes, The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. He repeats that again in the last verse. So our response to the threat of fear needs to be both personal and sometimes corporate. 
because of who God is because of what he has declared he will do for us we will not fear I don't know how it is in the States but we are living in a situation in the UK when our governments are more and more trying to intimidate us Christians and make us conform make us all be equal and that includes viewing every religion as equal but every religion is not equal every religion is different and the great difference between all the other religions and the Christian faith is all the other religions start at the bottom and work upwards man trying to save himself and please God somehow or other and the Christian faith which says you can't do that anyway so don't try starts at the top when God in his love and mercy sends his son down to earth to lay down his life for us no we will not be intimidated by our governments as they seek to silence our witness in this nation be fearless and secondly stand firm stand firm you see if you are attacked by somebody uh, if somebody is approaching you and threatening you and they're stronger than you are and they might just hit you pretty hard your personal natural inclination is to run away as fast as you can but you see that's not a Christian response our Christian response is to stand firm we find it in Ephesians 6 and all the teaching and spiritual warfare that when the battle's over you'll still be standing no, not out standing 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 firm stand firm well back in Psalm 46 God says be still be still and know that I am God so there's a time to not rush about frantically trying to do something to solve the situation but being still now that's something that most of us find incredibly hard to do isn't it? I find it hard to do be still but it's very often in these moments of stillness that God speaks into our lives and gives us a fresh revelation of who he is and how he cares for us, how he loves us the power he has to help us, to protect us oh yes be still and know that I am God there are many calls to obedience in the word of God and some are particularly important and the one that I have underlined I'm sure a few times here before is one that I seek to live by every day it's Galatians 5.16 where Paul says to the Christians to whom he's writing live by the Holy Spirit and also the Christians don't do that they enlist the help of the Holy Spirit now and again perhaps if I'm reading the Bible and want to understand it I better ask for the Holy Spirit to help me if I'm doing some praying perhaps I should ask the Holy Spirit to help me yes of course you should but live by the Holy Spirit means include the Holy Spirit in all your life in all your waking moments and I for one have found life much better that way much better that way when we enlist the Holy Spirit's help day after day, hour after hour and doing different things you see if you're accustomed to enlisting the Holy Spirit's help daily a crisis comes along you're not stopping to scratch your head and wonder what you'll do you know instinctively what to do you call on the spirit of God to come and get involved in this situation and do the needful oh yes call 
to obedience. And there follows in what we read here the promise of deliverance. Stand, do not be afraid, says Moses to the people, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Old Testament Hebrew word for deliverance or salvation is the word Yeshua. And Yeshua is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek Jesus. They know that? The Old Testament word for salvation and deliverance is Jesus. It's Yeshua. That's wonderful. And these people were being promised deliverance out of terrible bondage. Most of you will know the story. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. And they multiplied and grew. And the Egyptians got scared that the, the, the Hebrews might become too numerous and too strong for them. And if there was a war against Egypt, the, the, the Hebrews might side with the enemy and take over the land. So Pharaoh and his people began to put the pressure on. You remember? They were made to work harder. They made bricks to build buildings. And in the past, they were supplied the straw to make the bricks. And then this fellow said, well, make it harder for them. Just stop supplying the straw. Go, tell them to go and find their own straw. But still, still they've got to produce as many bricks every day. Oh, yes. And then they put the screw on seriously. Every male child born to the Hebrews, throw them in the river. Females, they can live. But males, male babies, throw them in the river. Now a certain couple whose names are not very well known to most Christians, Amram and Jochebed, they had already a lovely daughter called Miriam. And they had a baby boy called Moses, though he wasn't called that right away. And they were not for throwing Moses in the river. They were not for drowning their child. They made a little special container, waterproof container. You know the story and floated it in the river Nile and asked Miriam, Moses' sister, to go down and keep an eye on what was going on. And Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the river and she, oh, she sees this little thing floating in the water and she hears this baby crying, her heart's touched. And she rescues the baby. And she says, she realizes it's one of the Hebrews' babies. And she says to Miriam, would you go and call someone who would look after this baby for me? And of course Miriam, very smartly, goes back home and gets mum. So Moses has the privilege of being looked after in his early years by his own mum. But he's taken then eventually by Pharaoh's daughter to be looked after in royal circles. So he has the best education in Egypt. And then he has a secondary education in the wilderness looking after sheep. And then, oh, I like this, but at age 80, he starts his real life work. <laughs> so here he is. But the deliverance, you see, was from terrible bondage. These poor people had been in bondage. And I think we Christians sometimes fail to, to, to realize how many people there are around us in our, our communities who live out their lives in bondage. All unbelievers are in bondage to sin. And some are in more serious bondage than that, in that they're afflicted by evil spirits and that life is really terrible for them. Now Jesus said one day to some of his Hebrew listeners, Jewish listeners, 
If you know the truth, you'll know the truth, he said. And the truth, continue in my word and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they were indignant. They said, we, we don't need to be set free, we are free. We've never been slaves to anybody, they had a short memory. Their ancestors were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. We've never been slaves. Can you imagine walking down Buchanan Street in Glasgow and stopping a well-dressed gentleman and saying, excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? Oh, yes, yes, if you want to. <coughs> Are you a slave? You might get a very snooty reply, a very angry reply. How dare you suggest that I'm a slave? I'm a respectable businessman, don't you need to see that by the way I'm dressed? Ah, but Jesus said, everybody, everybody who commits sin is a slave. Our unsaved friends are our slaves, don't say it too often to them, but they're slaves. And Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, in other words, if I set you free, you'll get real freedom. And these people were promised deliverance after all these years of cruel bondage. And to the Galatian Christians again, Paul said in that same chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free and stand fast in that freedom don't lose that freedom move on in that freedom I can testify to the praise of God that I'm far freer than I was in earlier life even as a Christian, even as a pastor I was still living a life that was a bit dodgy sometimes and now by the grace of God I have discovered how to live in freedom. Oh, it is so much better. It is so much better. Now, when we read the New Testament, we find that God was doing miracles after miracles after miracles. And in the gifts of the Spirit listed in 1 Corinthians 12, there are healings, there are miracles. And I sometimes wonder, why do we not see more of these things? Yes, they occur occasionally, but why do we not see more of that miraculous power of God? These Nigerian guys who were with us in the church in Govan, they believed God for miracles. I was a chaplain in a local hospital for many years, and there was a boy in that hospital who was little, six or seven years of age, and he was very badly damaged in his legs, and the hospital folk, the medics, said, well, he'll never really walk properly again. I told two of our Nigerian brothers about this boy. And they went down to the hospital. And they laid hands on that child. And they prayed for that child. And the second week he was out playing football. God still heals people, you know. I was mightily encouraged just last week. Because Matty and Dennis, you know, who were here in this last summer with me. Well, Matty's health is very, very poor. And I was visiting them. And she was talking about her various ailments and she used one expression that I hadn't quite heard before or understood very well, a crushing feeling in her chest and so on. And I prayed with her before I left and as I began to pray for her I had really no great thought of ministering healing to her. It was one of those marvellous situations when the Holy Spirit seemed to take over and change my prayer for I was praying things I hadn't meant to pray. And she phoned me the next evening, in the evening of the next day, and she said, Sandy, I've just got to tell you this. She said, that, that crushing feeling that I had in my chest, I had that for five weeks, and it's gone. Hallelujah. She said, Jesus does still heal. 
people do still experience miraculous powers at work in their lives. These people were being delivered out of terrible bondage and into tremendous blessing. Abraham had been promised 400 years and more before that these, his descendants would be enslaved in Egypt. God had told Abraham they're going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and at the end of that time I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver them. Talk about being given information in advance. That's really a classic example of it. And they were rescued out of that terrible situation. And the Father sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. That you and I might experience deliverance from sin and really, really live as Paul says we are living. He says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's the way it can be and should be and is meant to be. The call to obedience, promise of deliverance and the activity of providence. My mother's generation did not always use the word God to describe God. They would sometimes refer to God as providence. They talk about not tempting providence. Oh yes, well we knew what they meant. Providence, the activity of providence because they were told by Moses, their leader, listen, the Lord is going to fight for you. Are you facing a situation that you can't handle? Well, here's the good news. The Lord wants to fight for you. He wants to help you to the extent that he's fighting your corner. This was begun, you see, long, long before, back in Genesis chapter 15. There is the Lord speaking to Abraham and saying, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. See, what God did in Moses' day was not a hasty decision. It was not some afterthought. It was announced to Abraham all those centuries before. And the fact is that God works in advance to bring blessing into our lives. The very birth of Moses. Hebrew women were having babies all the time. One more boy is born. But he's special. He's marked out for a unique ministry. And in a sense, every one of us is special. We are unique. None, no two of us are the same anywhere in the world. And when we sense that God has taken the trouble to make us uniquely different from everybody else, does it not kind of suggest that just as we are uniquely different people, so we will have a uniquely different privileges and responsibilities in the purpose of God throughout our lives. This activity of providence was begun long before Moses' leadership was going into action to rescue the people and lead them. And it continued long after, throughout the years in the wilderness and right down to the day when the Jewish people were planted again in the land of Israel. I don't know what God is saying to you this morning, but I hope he's encouraging you. 
to believe him for greater things. The Bible says nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And I, for one, want to live in this realm of impossibility. Impossibility transformed into possibility. Because God is with us. God is for us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we ask that you will teach us more and more to live in the victory of Jesus, to live by the power of your Holy Spirit, to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Take us forward in what remains of life for each one of us, desiring and determined that by your grace and with your help we will live victoriously, we will live effectively, and be serving you as you would have us serve you in our generation. In Jesus' name.